computer chips have physical limitations. When transistors get too small, electrons start to behave in ways that make the hardware modules less reliable. Our reliable technological progress has been enabled by Moore's Law, the idea that the number of components that we can fit on a chip doubles roughly every 12 to 18 months. We can't keep shrinking the size of these components because physics is no longer complying. Quantum computing allows us to operate on qubits rather than bits, which gives us better data parallelism and continued reliable progress. Quantum computing is still mostly an area of research rather than production systems, but it's rapidly approaching usability. And Zlatko Minev joins the show today to explain how quantum computing works and why software engineers should care. Zlatko is a PhD candidate at the Yale Quantum Information Lab, and today he describes how qubits work, which algorithms quantum computing impacts, and which parts of modern computer architecture will work on a quantum computer. We may have to throw out the von Neumann architecture when it comes to quantum computing. This episode is a great complement to the episode we did with Vijay Pandey from Andreessen Horowitz about quantum computing, so uh, check out that episode if you're looking for more in the quantum realm, and I'll certainly continue to cover it. Zlatko Minev is a PhD candidate at the Yale Quantum Information Lab, also known as the Q Lab. He's the founder and chair of Open Labs, and he is the recipient of the Yale Jefferson Award for Public Service. And today we are talking about quantum computing. Zlatko, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello, Jeff. I'm glad to be on. We did a show previously about quantum computing. It was from the standpoint of a venture capitalist who invested a lot of money into a quantum computing company called Rigetti Computing. That's the name of the company, the quantum computing company. Today's show is going to be a little bit lower level. We're going to talk about how quantum computing actually works. If people want to know about motivations for this show or the higher level uh, atmosphere, the business atmosphere around quantum computing, that previous episode might be a good place to start or to listen to after this episode. But in order to ease us into a conversation about quantum computing at this lower level, I think we should start with the physical limitations of our modern consumer computers. I've got a laptop on my desk right now. I've got a smartphone in my pocket. What are the physical limitations in the processors of our modern consumer computers? All right. Thank you for uh, starting with this question. One of the, uh, I guess I'll start from the beginning, the typical way and the way that you'll read in the news that computers are made faster and cheaper and better and so forth is by taking the beating heart of the computer, the transistor, its building block, and scaling it down, making it smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, the question is, how small can you go? And, well, you would say very small. Sure, you know, we've have invested, done this for 60 years. If you take your, say, iPhone and you zoom into the processing unit, the chip, its heart, and you go down to the level of that building block and you look at it and you could sort of zoom in, you could actually count the size of that, of its features in number of atoms. So it's about 100 atoms across at the current stage, at sort of 12 nanometer lithography stage that folks are doing. So we've really gone very far away at the moment from wires or, you know, vacuum tubes, if... If you love guitars, you probably know about vacuum tubes. We've gone down to the atomic scale in terms of what chip manufacturers like Intel and AMD and so forth are doing. And 
when you get to that level of the constituent matter, these are the atoms, the building blocks of nature, mm. you can no longer talk about current running down a wire because the current is now just 10 electrons or some number of electrons jumping across atoms. And so a lot of the usual laws and the way things are done breaks down. Mm. And one of the main limitations, for instance, in current modern technology and in, in the transistor what is power dissipation there is a large heat load and one of the ways that this arises is the fact that the uh, channel which blocks the current is so thin it's just atoms it's just some number of atoms across that current electrons can actually tunnel in a quantum mechanical sense they can i don't almost teleport if you want they can tunnel across the barrier because the barrier is so thin so they're they're never physically, if you want, inside the barrier. They can just pop up on one side without ever being in the middle. And this is just one of the richer ways in which nature behaves at this more fundamental level. So is, are you saying you start to lose power or you start to lose signal? You know, the, When you start to hit these physical limitations, you just... What exactly is breaking down? What becomes less effective? What is the functionality or the the power level that's restricted because of these low-level physical limitations? Right. Uh, for this for this case, it would be the leakage current. So the way that we encode typically ones and zeros, you can crudely think of it as having zero current or a lot of current or some voltage. But when this transistor is supposed to be blocking the current, when it's supposed to be off, you're still get, you can't actually turn it off completely because of this quantum tunneling. So you're getting this energy dissipated through anyhow and more generally than that is the control of the system becomes harder and harder and more challenging the smaller you get in addition okay. to just the difficulty of constructing the device um, again crudely if you know if you have a if you have two wires nearby each other and you're sending some information down one of them some electrons in principle they can actually just teleport to a nearby wire without ever you know sort of being in the middle and and that's clearly an issue. Mm. Is that happening today at the on the chips that we're building today for consumer computers? Yeah. So the question you might ask is, do do you know, chip makers like Intel and AMD need to you know go and learn atomic physics? And in a way, they have. They have had to, and they they really have to think about and model a lot of these things at the very quantum level, uh, at almost the atomic level. Uh, that's and then that's not to mention the. Uh, the maybe more obvious problem, which is to say that, well, we've been making the transistor smaller and smaller and smaller, and we've gone down to about 100 atoms across, right? Now, how small can you go? I mean, eventually you're going to get down to an atom, and you certainly can go further than that. So then the question is, what's next? What is next? We could answer with quantum computing. So let's let's talk a little bit about quantum computing, and we'll come back to modern computer systems and slowly bridge the gap between modern computer systems and quantum computing. What is quantum computing? Just give give a give the the high level 10,000 foot view. <laughs> All right, let me let me give a shot at this. Quantum computing. Well, it's it's not just a better version of classical computers. Okay? It's not just making a classical computer a little bit faster or a lot faster. It really takes and, and it also encompasses, so basically, in principle, everything we have already done in terms of computers is a subset of what is possible with the quantum computer. 
Okay. Quantum computation is maybe the scientist's way to answer some of these challenges with the scaling down and coming down into the regime of the nuisances presented by quantum mechanics for chip makers. Okay. Now, what are seen as nuisances and, and problems to chip makers like Intel and AMD in terms of these quantum effects to scientists are an opportunity. Their extra richness of nature that we have never tapped into previously, uh, it's, it's new potential, if you want, that hasn't been capitalized. And quantum mechanics originated about in, well, in the 1910s and so forth. So it's been about 100 years since we understood that quantum mechanics, quantum physics describes what these atoms do. And it's only really in the last 20, 30 years or so that we have started to be, to be able to not just look at the effects of quantum mechanics, but start to tame some of them and, and start to think of how to use them for uh, useful technologies and to be able to actually control them. Quantum technologies are very precarious things. Quantum systems, I mean, are very precarious things. They are quite susceptible to a number of noise processes and this extra richness, well, it's more to deal with. And so you have to figure out how to deal with it. Okay, so you've given us an overview of what quantum computing is. Where are we today? Because this idea has been talked about for such a long time, and just a few companies are starting to do work around it. Or actually, I guess companies have been doing work around it for several years. There's, you know, the the Rigetti funding was was more recent, but I know Google has been putting money into it. Microsoft's been putting money in, money into it for a while. There's that company D Wave. Are we at the lab stage? Are we at the emerging technology stage? Where is quantum computing? <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I can be happy to also give you a history perspective right after this. But in a very typical quantum fashion, and remember, one of the strange things about quantum mechanics is that an electron, a thing, can be here and there at the same time. And in this very same way, I think my personal answer to the question of is quantum computing at the lab stage or the emerging tech stage? I think the answer is that quantum computing has arrived and simultaneously it hasn't arrived. And let me clarify what I mean by that. You're right, quantum, the idea of quantum computation that you can take this extra behavior of nature at its most fundamental level, that initial idea may be precipitated in the late 80s. But it wasn't really until 1996 when... Uh, Peter Shore came up with an algorithm that would break essentially the RSA, the, the standard encryption model, cryptography model in terms of how we encode our information and protect it from bad people. Uh, it wasn't until then that it gained a lot of attention because suddenly it was realized that it could provide an exponential speed up over what's classically possible. So that was one of the very first applications. But there, were, there was a lot of skepticism in the following years, knowing that quantum computers are, um, that quantum machines are very susceptible to noise. And as people progressed, there was this big revelation all of a sudden that, well, we can do error correction even on quantum systems and get around this issue of the noise, in, in addition to just building and controlling them better. And fast forward to today, or actually, let's say two weeks ago, even one week ago, at the Microsoft Ignite conference, you know, Microsoft CEO 
announced, he said, there are three key technologies that will drive us forward. It was augmented reality, machine learning, and quantum computing. So for the software developers on the, on the podcast, I think you'll be excited to know that by the end of the year, you should be able to download Microsoft Visual Studio and do quantum coding in a new quantum programming language as well as simulations. Now, this is just one out of a few uh, possibilities in terms of where you can actually start to get applications and really either work for a startup or an established company or develop code for quantum software. So quantum software, I would say, is arriving at this very moment. There seems to be a lot of attention on that. There's also the IBM Python module package. There's the Rigetti one. There's the D-Wave one, just to name a few. At the same time, have we built a quantum computer yet? No. We haven't yet built the full machine. We've built very small prototypes of it. And I guess in the later part of the stock, we'll probably get into what are some of the architectures mm-hmm. and so forth. But mm-hmm. I would say that, well, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so great. So, you, you know, you've given us a picture for how things stand today, industry-wise. Yep. Let's talk fundamentals. In computer systems, information is represented as bits. We have a hard drive where these bits are represented as different regions of magnetization. We have other parts of the computer where bits are represented as high or low voltages. This is when information is moving around. And we we seem to have settled on the binary system where a given bit can be in one of two states. So, yes, why do we represent things in terms of bits? You know, the one just ones and zeros in two states uh, when, you know, we could represent them in so many different ways. And, and why is it relevant to quantum computing? Perfect. We don't have to. We don't have to use bits. Uh, that's maybe the simplest answer. We could use three states or more states of the system to encode the information. It has just been that, in fact, there's also analog computing uh, and neuromorphic computing now, which are coming back, and that's a different way to represent information, uh, which which is actually potentially quite viable. But anyway, we came down to the idea of bits, I believe, because it's the most irreducible building block. And also, theoretically, this is an, an easy way to, st- or a good way to study the scaling. Now, the idea was that if you can build just one building block and then you could just scale it up and make billions of them, if you could make one good one and then make a billion good ones, it didn't matter so much if it's three or two and two seemed like an easy way to do it with that was scalable. So maybe that's, that's the big picture view. And how it's relevant to quantum computing, in a way you can say quantum computing is different because you don't just encode the information in two bits you know is the coin on the table facing up or facing down that's one possible representation of the information or a seesaw if you want is the seesaw on the left side or the right side that could encode a zero and one now in quantum computing if we take the coin analogy a little bit further i could say well okay the the direction in which the heads of the coin point that's one and the other way is zero but I can take that coin and pick it up off the table, and all of a sudden I have a different way to encode the information. I can, the information is still one or zero, right? It's still, there's still just heads or tails, the coin doesn't change, 
but the direction in which the head faces can now point anywhere in 3D space. You can think of a little arrow that you hold in your hand. So that's very much like a qubit, a quantum bit. It can only be one or zero, it can only be heads or tails. However, the encoding direction of the information is more complicated and it can live anywhere on the sphere. So that's that's great disambiguation for, you know, we can represent information in different ways. We don't we don't necessarily need to do this binary format. This is kind of a you know, we came to a consensus on this convention about binary information, but in the quantum world, we are not necessarily representing things in the binary terms. And so that's the in, kind of the information theory point of view. Let's talk about the hardware point of view. We've got conventional circuits, we've got conventional hardware. What are the components in a circuit chip today and how might those change or how might those map to a quantum computer? Okay, great. So maybe on the higher level, there's there's different modules which do different operations. Uh, there's a you know, central processing unit, there's a memory unit, and there's wiring and connections. And uh, you would think scale, you think making one bit or one qubit is the is the easy is the hard part. And then you know you just build a thousand of them and put wires between them. It should work great, right? Well, putting things together is actually one of the main challenges of systems, and especially how do you interconnect and you know, the uh, putting two things together doesn't mean they'll both work just as well. So there's a lot of work that goes into the interconnects and that, and also the isolation of each of the modules, so that they really work as independent modules and they're not interlinked. Uh, and by the way, when you say modules, you're referring to AND gates or OR gates or NAND gates, right? Yes, AND OR and NAND, and even on a higher level in terms of you know circuits built up of those, which which yeah, it's really like a, matr- a matryoshka doll, like one of those Russian, you know, nested dolls, because <laughs> modules and modules and modules, and it just, you know, it goes crazy from there. Right. So, so, <laughs> so one level modules might refer to AND gates and OR gates, and this, the, you know, if you take a a Boolean algebra class or a uh, electrical engineering class, you have ones and zeros, low voltage and high voltage, and you use AND gates and OR gates to create more complex logic like an arithmetic logic unit, which might also, you could refer to as a module. And these different modules fit together to to be constructed into robust uh, operations. Precisely, precisely. And, and, yeah. all, and all of this is actually quite analogous to the quantum computing world, but each of those steps just gets a thousand times harder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So we've got these traditional chips, these circuit chips that are built up of modules, these AND and OR gates, and then those AND and OR gates build up into higher level modules like arithmetic logic units, and eventually we get to you know actual computing. Uh, computer architecture fits together like that. But at the lowest level, these AND and OR gates are built out of transistors. Uh, these transistors consist of electrons that are flowing through or being blocked, you know, in the sense of one or zero, and the transistors, as they get smaller and smaller, the the pathways are becoming as narrow as an atom, and traditional computing starts to get less reliable when these transistors get narrow, when the channel gets as narrow as an atom. So we've been forced into this place where we have to build at the quantum level, and this creates a difficulty 
but it also creates an opportunity. Explain what's going on. You know, you touched on it a little bit earlier. Maybe you could ref- refresh us. What is going on with these, when these transistors, these channels, get narrower than an atom? And but what are the opportunities also at this quantum level? Great, you're right. The transistor is essentially a three-part device. There is an in, which is the emitter, an out, which is the collector, and then there's a base, or which regulates the flow of current through the device, through the in to the out. And as all of these features get a lot close, a lot smaller, usually that has been when we're able to increase the clock cycle or the frequency at which these things work, all of these quantum effects uh, become more and more pronounced. As you come, as you go to higher energies, and as you get to smaller and smaller scales, this is the world of, of quantum mechanics—the world of small things. Okay, and so in quantum mechanics, there are a couple of things that are essential to to the idea of quantum. One is that things are discrete. Two is that they're random, and three that they can tunnel through barriers, for instance. And so when uh, when the when you establish an electrical barrier between the input or the uh, and the output, then uh, as the frequency or the energy and it gets larger, and as you make the barrier smaller, uh, it's more and more likely for the electrons from one side to tunnel to the other side, and so that causes a lot of limitations in terms of power consumption and so forth. Now, what? Now you would say that okay, we might have to go to do quantum computation we might have to actually go down to the single atom and take that atom and and now try to control it in some manner but what we have realized in the last 20 years is that while that's one approach and we can actually do that more or less this is ionic computing another very viable approach which looks very much like classical computers is to take circuits built of billions of atoms and billions of electrons and cool them to an incredibly low temperature, uh, to negative 273.14 Celsius. A lot of people will say that's colder than outer space, but it's a little funny of a saying. Now, when you go to such low temperatures, what happens is, uh, is a freezing out of a lot of the noise, of a lot of the individual agitation of each of the electrons. And these electrons will essentially condense into one fluid, a superconducting fluid, if you want, one body. And even though there's billions of electrons, they can actually act as if they were a single electron. And from that wire, you can now take, uh, you can take that wire and essentially design an artificial atom. An artificial atom in the sense that it's made from many atoms and many electrons, but it's printed on a circuit board. And you can design its electrical properties but in, in, in many ways, it acts just as if it was a single atom in, in space. And what's great about that is that you can really engineer its electrical properties, its coupling strengths, and so forth. Mm. Yeah, and I can actually build on with a little analogy if you want in terms of... Please do. Yes, continue. Yeah, to, to give you a little bit of a perspective, okay, you might say, okay, this, what is, this is kind of crazy. What's going Why are these things just coalescing into this electrical fluid? Uh, I think of it a little bit like this. Think of each electron as a... As a penguin. <laughs> All right. When it's hot, when it's hot, each of those electrons, each of those penguins is going to be very, very agitated. They don't like it. They're going to be running around, hitting into each other. And that's a lot of noise. That's a lot of decoherence. That's kind of what electrons do when it's room temperature. 
But as you make it very, very cold, as you take energy out of the system, these electrons, these penguins, they start to freeze. They start to get cold. Now, they can never completely freeze, but what they're going to do is start to get close to other penguins and it will become energetically favorable for them to be close to each other and kind of you know snuggle up close to each other and walk in unison. And uh, that, that, mm. that's the way they can keep warm if you want to. Well, it's the energetically favorable thing to do. So these atoms that are operating together in a way that we can control to some degree, how does this relate to the, the concept of a qubit? Because I know a qubit is this thing that we can implement in superconductors or atoms or other devices, but I don't quite know what a qubit is. Great. So one of the issues we talked about in, in a classical computer is, um, well, there's this extra flow of electrons and that causes dissipation. It causes heat load and but modern supercomputing centers are really limited, for instance, by the heat load. Uh, there's, a, there's even, or by, by the heat load and also by the power consumption that they require due to the heating. And, you know, there's even plans to build nuclear reactors next to supercomputer centers. That's, that's how much power these things take. Now, a superconductor doesn't really dissipate energy in principle. It, it doesn't, it's a superconductor, and that's what we mean, is that it does it. The electrons coalesce individually, and they move in unison coherently. Um, so the individual excitations of all the bumping around, that's sort of bad. That, that causes dissipation. Uh, so a, one way to design a qubit is to take this flow of electrical current, of supercurrent, and for instance, you might put it in a ring. And now the current can circulate clockwise, or it can circulate counterclockwise in that ring. And that could represent a zero or a one. And that, that's, that would be the simple equivalent. Now, what's mm. special about this state is because there is no dissipation, just like the coin, it doesn't have to be on the table. Okay, dissipation is, a bit, is going to a bit, uh, very much constrain that, the coin, which is heads or tails, to be stuck on the table. But once you remove dissipation, I can pick the coin off the table, and now I can orient it in any intermediate direction. So in an analogous manner, the the current can be going clockwise and counterclockwise if you want at the same time or some of the you know you can you can build this extra encoding of where how the qubit where the qubit is now okay so i think i'm understanding so the so first of all is the qubit this this uh condensation of electrons that you were talking about earlier this self-made condensation of electrons great well that's one embodiment that's one physical embodiment of a qubit one way you could make it the qubit is more of a concept a notion just like a bit in classical in the classical sense a bit oh, just okay. means you know one of two states you have a choice it's the minimal unit of information oh. okay. um, so a bit can be made out of you know current on or current off it can also be made from a seesaw being on the left or the right can it, it can be made from a wooden machine which is sort of what the original computers were like so a qubit is not a physical concept it's a it's an abstract concept yes it's more it's it's the minimal quantum system it's the minimal information you can't really have one state because that you know two states is the minimal you can really have hmm. okay and how big are we talking here in terms of the physical implementations like 
how much space does a qubit occupy? That's great. So there are two things to that. The first is that there are atomic qubits made out of individual atoms, which are exactly one atom large. Now, using working with those qubits is, is a bit more challenging in the sense that you can't just have this atom like floating in space. You have to entrap it. You have to you know, isolate it from the environment and so forth. So there's some complexity associated with that. But it's, it's really just one atom large. A superconducting qubit, on the other hand, can be billions of atoms, and you can make its size more or less whatever you want. It can be a millimeter, or, or we can even build them down to the nanometer size. So the current superconducting qubits are physically going to be a little bit larger than the transistors. But that is not so important because their physical size is not as important because what really matters is the potential for computation that they offer. You know, one bit does not equal one qubit. The state space that you can explore with a with n bits is 2 to the n, whereas the state space that you can explore with n qubits is 2 to the 2 to the n. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that state space so important? Because I took a class in college, and maybe I was misinformed by the professor, but I thought the professor talked about this thing where there was a period of time in the 80s or early 90s or something where people were experimenting with ternary systems where we had, you know, you could have zero, one, or two, and how that, you know, was impact, how that was represented on the hardware level is like, you know, transistors today is low or high voltage, but those voltages are just ranges. So you could, you know, have, you could also have a third range. You could have low, medium, or high voltage. And we decided not to do that as the, the entire computing industry was just like, no, let's just stick, stick to binary. How is, how is this discussion of qubits representing a more rich information possibility space? How does that differ from the whole ternary question? Yeah, no, great question. It's a bit like, if you want, that's really the footprint that you care about. It's, it's your configuration space relative to the physical size. So in that sense, that's how you win. It's because for less physical elements here, you have a lot more uh, a lot more possibilities to explore i mean it's a little bit it's mm. more subtle than that there are special rules in quantum mechanics but you know to a first order um you consider this you know you go to a dinner party and uh, you and your nine other friends there's 10 friends you guys want to sit down around the table and you try to figure out well how do i you know john wants to sit next to jen and so forth and you might think okay how do i figure this out i can think about all the combinations well they're they're 10 factorial combinations for 10 people sitting around the table that turns into three and a half million possibilities already. Uh, so you can see that this problem is actually grows very quickly. And uh, to explore those possibilities, you want to be able to encode them somehow. And um, that's, that's one challenge. Okay, well, we have the logical abstraction of a qubit, and then we have the physical manifestation of the qubit, or we have some different ways that we we're implementing it. You mentioned a nuclear qubit, and I think some Super other and super superconducting qubit. Okay, in these cases, what are we doing? Like, how are we taking advantage of those physical properties? To, and what what can we do with a qubit? Great, great. So. Some of the things that people have been doing, well, with a single qubit, it's, it's like a single bit. You know, there's some fun things you can do, but it's fairly limited. The power of computation really comes from having many of these put together, interconnected, 
and so forth. The atomic qubits, for instance, are controlled with lasers. So you, you shine light. You shine a laser light, and that, that is how you can control it. Uh, the superconducting qubits, on the other hand, use microwave microwaves or microwave light, sort of similar to what you would use for cell phone communication range, but very high, but high precision. Now, when you put many of these qubits together, some of the things you can do, even at the current smaller stage of, you know, I think currently we're generally at about 20 qubits in terms of what people are doing at the moment. Uh, there, was a, there was a really cool paper recently from the IBM group on uh, simulating uh, the chemically stable ground state of certain molecules. So you, one, of the th one of the things you, you can already start to, some of the questions you can already start to answer are about physical problems, like simulating chemistry, simulating nature at this level. Now, those problems tend to be quite difficult, again, because chemistry and, and these physical atoms, physical systems are often quantum, and so they have this large state space that a classical computer needs to simulate. But that's very expensive because the scaling between the two is, Exponential. A quantum system is very apt and able to simulate a quantum, another quantum system. So it's it's quite efficient and quite good at that. You know, some of the applications of that are uh, a lot of the physics or chemistry. Some of the larger perspectives. One of the things that I'm actually I think is really cool is once you can get more of these qubits together and you can really start to represent more and more complicated states. There are speedups, exponential speedups. There's an exponential speedup for all of the BLAS routines, the basic linear algebra subroutines, uh, such as such as finding eigenvectors, finding eigenvalues, solving linear equations, Fourier transforms. And right now we 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 have they exhibit quantum quantum basically linear algebra subroutines exhibit exponential quantum speedups over their best known classical counterparts. There are caveats which are important in terms of the encoding, the time it takes to encode the information, the sparsity and rank of the matrices and so forth. But I think the uh, progress has been really, really amazing. Okay. You are giving a tangible example for why using these qubits is going to be really helpful. We've got all these matrix operations, these mathematical operations, that computers are doing all the time, you know, whether we're talking about scientific applications or uh, signal signal transfer, I think is like you know you see a lot in Fourier transform stuff, uh, and um, of course machine learning is all about matrix multiplication at the lower level. That's why you see people like Intel and Nvidia rebuilding their chips to do and and like the tensor board that, or the tensor um, tensor processing unit. At Google, they're rebuilding these systems to do matrix calculations faster. Tell us how we do some of these advanced operations. How are we going to take advantage of qubits to do machine learning faster? All right. Uh, let me give you one of the uh, possible examples. Suppose you have a maze and take a particular concrete example. Maybe as a kid, you played with one of those uh, little boxes. It's a maze and there's a little metal ball. And you have to kind of take the box and like twist, you know, turn it left and right in space until the ball goes from point A to point B on the maze. Now, how would one solve this problem classically? One way you could do is take, in, in an algorithmic sense, one, way, one thing you could do is take this box and the ball and 
basically try every single possible combination. Uh, that will take you the time to do all of those combinations, right? Uh, which could, which is one of these exponentially scaling problems. On the other hand, what would be the kind of analogy to a quantum computer? Like we said, a quantum system can essentially explore multiple possibilities at the same time. So solving this same problem with a quantum computer would be like taking water and flushing it through the maze. Some of that water is definitely going to make it from point A to point B very fast. And you have simultaneously explored all the possibilities. So you can see that there's, there's clear advantage here. Now, this advantage comes also with some subtleties. Uh, on the output, you also get a bunch of water. <laughs> so you have to figure out how to, how to engineer the output of the, of the algorithms so that this water coalesces in, uh, on the output in a meaningful way so that it tells you exactly which is the right path to take. And this is where a lot of the, the subtlety and trickery of the actual designing of quantum algorithms comes from. You know, it's, they offer so much more richness, but that richness also means they're more complex to work with. So it take, you ha we have to learn the rules of quantum software. Hmm. So maybe the, you know, the, how that would be analogous. So your, your analogy, how that would be analogous to a machine learning problem is, I think in machine learning, you're, you want to test different weights, different hyperparameters in each iteration of your training, and you want to do all this training, and you could, typically you have to do it iteratively, but maybe in a quantum world you could test a bunch of different iterations all at once and then just you know check the outputs against each other. To build on that, there's quantum annealers are a very popular approach pursued by, by a number of people. You have to now imagine that you have some cost function, and this cost function is over some state variables. Anyway, it represents a, a landscape. Okay, there's some hills and valleys, peaks and troughs. You start the system, and the the goal is to find the state of the system. So the configuration: are my bits one and zero here? You know, what, how should the system, how should the ones and zeros be distributed so that mm -hmm. the energy or the cost function, so the energy is minimized or the cost function of the system is minimized. This is the variation. This can be done with a variational approach. But what you can do with a quantum system is start the system anywhere in any configuration. So it might be in a maxima or a minima. And there could be many minimas which you could get trapped in. But you're guaranteed pretty much that a quantum system will eventually always tunnel down to the ground state as time goes on. And so you will, in principle, never get trapped in one of the local minimas because you can always uh, just tunnel out of it and find your way down to the ground state. There are subtleties in terms of how long it will take you to tunnel out of the system, but that's that would be one idea. And I gotta tell you, I'm still very confused about how we're using these qubits. Uh, I understand we can use them to explore multiple things at once. They can be in multiple states at once, but I'm still having trouble kind of thinking like, how are we reading a qubit? How are we writing a qubit? How do we coordinate these qubits to represent something? Or am I? Am, are those not even the right questions to be asking? Yeah, well, we, I can try to answer that one. To take the analogy with the coin again, um, you know, we, we said you can take the coin and, and 
basically encode it to be up or down by taking taking your hand and applying some force on it, and you can flip the coin. So that's applying some force. It's it's basically the same thing with the qubit. It's just that the force now is going to be some light pulse, uh, let's say a microwave pulse, uh, and you can in that pulse encode a certain amplitude of the rotation of the coin in space, and you can encode a certain phase. So you can choose the axes around which you rotate. Uh, the qubit encoding. And that's how we can write information to the qubit and and control it and do gates, single qubit gates on it. Hmm. Gate. What is a quantum gate? <laughs> well, a quantum gate would be uh, similar to a classical gate. Let me give you the, maybe the simplest example of a gate. Like an and or or. Exactly. Gate. And or or. Or not. Let's say the simplest gate is probably not. You know, If I have one, not one is zero. If I have zero, not zero is one. Uh, you can do a similar thing in with the quantum with the quantum bit. You can do a pi pulse, which which takes a one to a zero and a zero to a one. Uh, the thing about quantum gates is that there are more possible gates than just classical gates. Uh, things that don't make sense classically. For instance, we said a knot, but in quantum mechanics, you can do a thing which is a square root of a knot, and that really only has meaning because of the the different possible encodings. But classically, square root of a knot doesn't really mean anything. How do we build a quantum gate? Right. Well, at the moment, the way that they are often done is by having a classical computer, an external control, manipulate some electronics and feed those down uh, into, for the superconducting qubits, into a dilution refrigerator and apply these microwave pulses that rotate the qubits. That's how you do single qubits. To actually do and or XOR, uh, those are rather complicated gates, uh, or can be, or to do, let's say, more primitive gates like C-naught, a controlled knot gate, so uh, one qubit controls the other qubit. We often take the two systems that represent each qubit, the two physical systems, and interact them, turn on an interaction between them for, for some amount of time. So it's really harnessing the, their physics and physical dynamics in order to come up with what is the right you know, physical action that would map into realizing this um, concept of a control gate or some other quantum gate. Let's go back to the example of today's physical computing, where we have ones and zeros being represented by magnetism in the case of a disk, or in electricity, we're representing ones and zeros in, in the case of transistors being high or low voltage. How does that physical representation of ones and zeros, how does that map to the state representation in quantum computing? Yeah, so how are, how are classical bits of ones and zeros similar to and different from the quantum bits? Well, they can be totally different. And for instance, in the case of, a, of an, because also there are multiple implementations of qubits, you know, we haven't, we're still exploring many possibilities. You know, Microsoft is pursuing Majoranas, uh, a lot of the other communities pursuing superconducting qubits, other folks are pursuing ions and so forth. Some people are doing NV centers and diamond. There are quite a few implementations, and most of those are totally different than what we do in classical computers. The, maybe the closest one is the superconducting one, where we actually build circuits in the exact same way that Intel and AMD and so forth build circuits, 
in fact, some you know some folks, TU Delft, is building quantum computing chips at the Intel Fab facilities. And we build circuits, but they are different circuits. They're superconducting circuits, and they are uh, the actual structure is, is is really quite different. We really build these. Uh, they're all essentially based on the Josephson device. Uh, for Josephson was awarded the Nobel Prize some time ago, and that's one of those effects again that uses the tunneling of electrons or Cooper pairs through a barrier. Hmm. Okay, so this is this is really helpful because I'm starting to understand this idea that you know a qubit is again this it's a logical construct. This is not a physical construct. Just like a bit is a logical construct. People represent bits in different ways. You mentioned the seesaw or the coin. Can a bit can be a seesaw? Can be up or you know left or right is down. And you you could have a network of a of a bajillion seesaws, and that would make up a computer, and you could build up computing systems out of that. And similarly, a qubit can be represented by these different physical manifestations that we're experimenting with. And in in any of these cases, the the qubit algorithms, the, the algorithms that you're building off of qubits, tend to be things where you're representing, you, know, you can represent a wider range of states, because instead of just a one or zero binary, uh, I believe you have more of a of a matrix of different different ways that a single qubit could different you know single qubit could represent and it can represent multiple kind of things at once. I'm starting to understand that lower level concern. What else changes at the higher level? So like we have things like the von Neumann architecture. I don't remember exactly what that is, but it's something to do with like story of storage and compute or these different like higher level regions of computing. Does that stuff stay the same in the world of quantum computing or does our entire higher level architecture change as well? Oh yeah, this is a very exciting question. It changes. Yep. The Turing machine is, if, like if we take it to a very high conceptual level, you have to expand that notion to now a quantum Turing machine. You know, again, everything we've done so far is really just a subset. The analogy I would use here is to say that classical computation is like painting on a canvas, but it's painting on that canvas in black and white. So if you try to paint a sunset, for instance, you're limited in the ability of what you can achieve. But if you now enable yourself an extra richness and dimensionalities, for instance, you can explore more <laughs> possible states. To take a crude analogy, you, if you can paint on that same canvas in full color, you can do whatever you did before. You can paint the same paintings, but you can now also achieve more, even though you're still working on the same landscape. So yes, we have to we have to rethink basically <laughs> the last sixty years. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, let's talk more practically. So we understand qubits. We understand that because we're in the qubit world now, we've got to rebuild a bunch of architectural concepts. But what else do we need to actually build a physical... What does is, what is a quantum computer look like today? Or I think it's kind of... We're doing a lot of virtualization of a quantum computer, sort of. Or I guess take me through what... Let's look at it this way. Take me through your favorite labs and your favorite industrial examples and what they're doing. Like, what are they doing at Rigetti? What are they doing at Intel? What are they simulating? What are they experimenting on? Give me a whirlwind tour. All right. Let me try to tackle that one. It's... A there's, the field is big and there's a lot going on. 
So let, let me let's see. So virtualization, I think, is here. You can you can work with simple quantum computers. Like I said, there's the Microsoft thing. There's there's you know, Rigetti, IBM, etc. You can download Qtip. Qtip is an amazing package, by the way. You should use it. But can you actually, you know, can anybody actually take a quantum computer right now and work with it? The answer is, uh, again, quantum mechanically, yes and no. There are yes, you can. There was the IBM Quantum Experience where anybody could go on and program their quantum computer. And they would actually run on this, you know, at negative 275 Celsius and execute your program. That's the yes part. And I'll get into a little bit more of that. The no part is that, well, it's a computer, but, you know, it's only still a handful of qubits. So I, you know, I wouldn't say that we have yet built a quantum computer, it's depending on what you mean by quantum computer. You know, is the ENIAC the first classical computer or is it something before that? So, but there are quantum machines primitives of quantum computers which really exist today which you can start using uh, programming playing with what it, what do some of these look like well i mentioned the ionic ones the uh, the ones that i work with and the ones i'm more familiar with are the superconducting quantum computers which look a lot like printed circuits but those circuits sit at the uh, base of a what's called a dilution refrigerator this thing that takes temp just takes temperature down from room temperature to uh, 15 thousandths of a Kelvin above absolute zero. And so what would you like me sort of to go from here? So let's focus on set of some of the top companies and research labs that are doing experiments and research in quantum computing today. Maybe you could tell me what is Microsoft doing? What is Rigetti Computing doing? And what are you doing? Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I can I can talk about that. Right. So, the quantum compute the quantum computer doesn't just have one embodiment at the moment. They're really we're really what's I think also really exciting to me and and to anybody in the field is that we can have a we can really choose and have an impact in terms of how the quantum computation quantum technologies of the future look like. We're exploring uh, various possibilities. Again, there's a lot of richness here to play with. For instance. One of the things that you know, Google and IBM and, and and Rigetti, all of these players are using gate-based quantum computation. Uh, D-Wave is doing a annealing, but all of these groups, including including my group at Yale, were all doing super con- superconductors, these low-temperature printed circuits. Now, within that space, we're really broken up into different approaches. So, for instance, at, at Yale, we're really pursuing a different way to encode the information, to encode a qubit, a quantum bit, in terms of a hardware-efficient manner built from superconducting cavities, which are not a two-state system. They're not actually bits or qubits themselves. They have many more states, but the idea is to use those many more states to redundantly, in an error-correctable way, encode information. Folks at Rigetti and IBM, Delft, etc. There's too many names to name. I'm sorry if I'm missing anyone. Are pursuing the idea of building really good uh, individual bits, as good as they can get them. But the way that they'll actually protect their information down the line is to uh, take those bits and make many of them. Usually in a thing that's called the surface code. It's a, it's a way to redundantly encode the information in a clever manner so that if an error happens 
and those errors do happen, you can recover the information. So it's really building many, 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 many qubits to encode one logical bit of information. You know, you, you can think of the simplest classical encoding mechanism, which is to say, well, if, if I have three coins and I want to give them to my friend, if, if I want to really just tell him I want up or down, I might send him three coins that are all heads uh, so that in case one of them gets flipped in the transmission, he can still figure out that by majority voting, two of them are heads. So I must have meant heads because there's always noise in the, in the communication channel. And classical computers likewise have error correction built into them at the, at, at the lower level. Well, let's, let's begin to close off and talk about where we are at today and when quantum computing is going to start to be used. How long do you think it is before somebody can put a quantum computer in the cloud and start to accept requests? <laughs> there are people that will say that they have that ability at the moment. And I think even, you know, even companies like Alibaba, I believe, I think I just read an announcement yesterday that they're planning to do a quantum computing uh, in the cloud. Uh, there's also you know, Microsoft and, and Google and IBM and, and you know, D-Wave and Intel probably and so forth. But again, when we say quantum computer at the moment, we really mean a handful of qubits. Now, even though it's a handful of qubits, because of this two to the two to the n, uh, idea, some of the computations you can do are already getting to that stage where they where we can do problems that not that no classical computer can hope to do at the moment. It's questionable whether we've reached that at the moment, but a lot of the projections are that by the end of this year, we'll really break through uh, some of the first examples of algorithms and solutions to problems. A lot of them in the uh, simulation of physical systems or chemistry that will that will be able to will be able to do problems that classical computers shouldn't be able to do anytime in the near future this is this whole notion you might read about in in the news about quantum supremacy uh, so quantum supremacy it's it doesn't mean that quantum computers have broken all classical computers but it will mean that this is really one of the tipping points of when quantum computation starts to get ahead of potentially what's possible with classical computers. All right. Well, this has been a great explanation for how quantum computing exists today, where it's going, and some of the some of the big questions that remain. So Zlatko, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. It's been great having being here, Jeff.